If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures, please, to Second Timothy chapter two, verses eight through thirteen. I'll not ask for a show of hands of who even remembers what the assignment was last Sunday, and let alone completed it. But I hope that some of you were able to focus on the Word of God. Remember the last statement made in that passage is verse 7. Paul says, consider what I say. Consider. Think it through carefully. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. This morning we enter into a series of passages that are not completely unlike others that we've been reading. But the theme is so deep and and so in many ways otherworldly to us who have grown up in a western culture where we can flip the temperature inside our rooms to whatever we would desire whether it's hot or cold and we can run to the several rooms in our house and turn on water be it hot or cold we can refrigerate things and we can freeze things we can hop in a car and travel several hundred miles over the weekend and visit friends and family we have warnings of tornadoes coming in Uh, we have Warnings of hurricanes coming in weeks in advance sometimes. We have a totally different world in which we live in, especially us. And the main theme of this morning that is so hard for us to grasp is suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know many of you have had times of suffering, whether it be the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse, uh, relationships broken, Some of you have had ongoing illnesses and pain and difficulties. And that is not this morning my intention to make light of that by any means. But what we're talking about this morning is is something that, that we have such a difficulty grasping. This does not sell well in the United States. We go to North Korea and we sit down with some people there. They know what Paul's talking about. They go to portions of Iran. They know what Paul is talking about here. We go to portions of India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Many places around the world, when they hear Paul speak like this, it, it, they unite with him. They know what this is like. And that is not to scold us. We're blessed. We have many opportunities. We have probably more dangerous minefields to lose faith in this country than they do because of our prosperity and ease. But may we listen this morning and work hard. Work hard to go past my preaching and let the Spirit of God speak to you through these words. Go past what what you're used to, what, what you see as your goal spiritually and try to understand where Paul has taken us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are going to be exposed by your spirit through your word to things that are difficult for us to understand. Father, sometimes we do not want to consider these things. Sometimes we have no idea even how to imagine them. But your word is a two-edged sword, sharper than a two-edged sword. And it penetrates and it divides even to soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, please let your word 
its work in us this morning. Speak to us and lead us so that we will be better prepared, so that we will even on a daily basis live for you in some of these ways that Paul is speaking about this morning. We depend upon you fully, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Verse 8, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Paul is writing the final letter of his life. As far as we know, he never wrote another letter after this. He is awaiting certain execution. Imprisoned in a holding cell, the cell itself makes the prospect of execution attractive. It is crowded with other condemned men, likely some who have already succumbed and are merely corpses on the stone floor. The only light is what filters in through a small manhole cut into the ceiling of this six foot and a half high cell, 30 foot in diameter, a dungeon. The stench and depression are palpable. The recipient of his letter is a young man. One he has trained to lead and marshaled into spiritual battle at several cities in Asia Minor. This time, this young man is in Ephesus. This younger colleague, Timothy, serves a church fraught with former leaders who have defected from true faith and are trying to take over. The scenario is precarious and it is demanding. How can Paul now, from this spell, from this cell, spur Timothy on? How does he get him to fight on, to hold tight, to not desert his post, to not lay down his weapon? He commands him to focus. He says, to remember. To remember what? What should he remember at this time? Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. There are many slogans that are put out there. Remember this, remember that when you're in a difficult time. None of those compare to this. When you are broken and on the verge of falling away, despair, difficulty, remember Jesus Christ. Timothy, you must remember Him. The writer to the Hebrews urged the small Roman church of Jewish believers. In Hebrews chapter 12, he said, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him, consider Him, who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. We do, don't we? We become worried and discouraged in, in your soul. If you don't, you're very unique. I do often. I need this. I need to remember that. Fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. His name, Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. Of the seed of David, This would remind Timothy of the glory of Jesus in being the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David. King David, a thousand years earlier, through the prophet Nathan, heard in 2 Samuel, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The prominent the promise, the covenant promise to David.
And Timothy must also remember that this Messiah, King, was a literal man. It goes on to say, in fact, this Messiah, Savior, had to be born a man. Romans 1, verse 3. Born of the seed of David, according to, or in the manner of flesh. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, we see this depiction of something completely otherworldly. It describes the Son of God, God Himself, taking on human flesh. Now you sit, sit this afternoon and try to think about that. An eternal, immortal, invisible God who exists everywhere at all times clothes himself in the same skin and bones that you are clothed with. A man he must be. He must be a man in order to accomplish what the Father had determined before the world even existed. This God become man would fulfill the most unique role for all of mankind. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, through 6, it says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. This God-man must be God and He must be man in order to mediate on our behalf. He must be God in order to have full access to the righteous Father God and have authority to bring men into His presence. He must be man in order to represent mortal man. He must be man to be an offering for man. Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy. Remember this one. He was, he says here, raised from the dead. Four priceless truths about that resurrection. First of all, it was of first importance to Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The first important thing. Secondly, His being raised from the dead confirmed Jesus is God. He truly has had discussions Friday night with who Jesus really was. And this man swore up and down he could not be God. He could hear all of that's written about him. He could see all of the miracles and believe that those things happened. But he would not grasp this. The resurrection confirms to us that he was God. It says in Romans 1, 4, he, was declared, he declared Jesus to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Thirdly, it confirmed that the full payment of sin was complete. Because he was not kept in that grave held by death, we know that his payment for our sin was full and complete. It released him. Romans 4, 24 and 25. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We are right before God if we have put our faith in him. And fourthly, His resurrection gave us full confidence of our resurrection. Because He lives, we live. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Does that thrill anybody? I, mean, we're, 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 I understand. 
We have so much going on. We are occupied so often with the things of this world. It's hard to look past this. But these are amazing truths. Someday, your heart will stop beating. It may be this afternoon. It may not be for another 50 years. But it will end. And, it, and all things that you have known here on this earth are over. And you will float off. And people will forget about you pretty soon. A lot sooner than maybe you would imagine. But if you have trusted in Christ, in Him, His resurrection has guaranteed you that upon that last beat of your heart here, you are in the presence of God for eternity, with joy, with thrill, excitement, beyond anything we've ever imagined. Listen to the boldness and power of Jesus in this statement from Revelation chapter 1. John writes, When I saw Him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. What a bold statement. I was alive. I was dead. God was dead in Christ but I live now forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. All of this, Paul says, is in accordance with my gospel, Paul's gospel. And this was not Paul's gospel because he created it. It's not his exclusively by any means. It was his because it owned him. The gospel owned Paul. He lived for that. It coursed through the veins of that man's body, through his mind. That was his. He had been saved by it and he had become the most faithful and enduring ambassador the gospel has ever known. The gospel was Paul's identity. He declared this previously in Romans 2. He said, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In Romans 16, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. It was for this gospel that Paul in verse 9 in 2 Timothy 2, it says, suffered trouble. He suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not changed. This verse brings us to the suffering for the gospel. Suffer trouble. It's one Greek word. It means to undergo hardship, to be afflicted. Paul has already urged Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 1, to partner with him in suffering. He wrote, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the suffering of the gospel, according to the power of God. In Second Timothy 2 verse 3, he tells Timothy, Take hold of suffering. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul is going through great suffering, perhaps the heaviest, most painful days of his entire life. And on top of it all, he now sees that he is an enemy of Rome. He is called an evildoer in this version. He's called a criminal, a malefactor in some of your other translations. The word kakurgos is translated criminal. It's found in Luke chapter 23 three times. Luke 23, 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. You see where Paul is? At this moment in time, he is considered no better than the heinous criminals crucified with Jesus. 
And to prove how he is being treated now, he says, I am even now chained. I want to read four of your different translations on this scripture just to give us a flavor. It kind of repeats it over in different ways. NASB says, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. ESV, For which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. The King James, When I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds. NIV, which, For which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Paul was no enemy of Rome. But, but, we love that word in Scripture. It seems we can never give this strategic word the power and the glory it contains. But, though Paul be chained, isolated, and contained, nothing and no one can restrain the word of God. The gospel. The word of God is not. And right, that word little not there is absolutely negative. No conditions. No exceptions. It is absolutely not bound. Chained. Or imprisoned. The gospel cannot be restrained. Brothers and sisters. Paul is not talking here about the written pages of scripture. He is talking about the gospel message, the communication of God contained in scripture, but living and powerful. It is irrepressible. Even when the written pages have been removed, it cannot be suppressed. Paul testifies of the compelling, unrestrained power of that gospel when he writes to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. And, And Paul is Right now, under the control of the Roman government, he's being held. And he writes, I want you to know, brothers, you all in Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in chains. He's prisoned. He's, he's bound to guards. And he says, it's, it's advanced the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been conf- becoming confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Yet all over the place, this imprisonment is working miracles for the gospel. It is changing guards. It is changing guards' families and staff members throughout the palace. It is emboldening the other men that are out there preaching the gospel to have no fear. Our man Paul is in there. What are we doing? Get out there and preach. The gospel cannot be contained. Chain Paul up to some soldiers and put him in jail. And it's as if he has some infectious spiritual super virus that passes from him to his guards and to the entire palace staff. Prior to the communist takeover of China in 1949, there were an estimated 700,000 Christians throughout that land. But the ensuing cultural revolution, they call it, brought the slaughter and starvation of between 40 to 80 million Chinese. 40 to 80 million, including most of the Christians. Seven decades later, reports still reveal oppression to the gospel. I quote, Currently among China's major religions, which include Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, and folk beliefs, 
Christianity is the only one whose major holy text cannot be sold through normal commercial channels. The Bible is printed in China, but legally available only at church bookstores approved by Beijing. Open Doors Ministry for Global Persecution in their website wrote, New restrictions on internet and social media, together with the 2018 regulations on religion, which includes a ban on anyone under the age of 18 attending church, are severely limiting Christian freedom. How has the gospel of Jesus Christ fared under 70 years of strategic, systematic, and violent repression? After decades of continual brutal persecution coupled with attempts literally to limit, to eliminate, to edit, to rewrite. Actually, there have been rewrites of the scriptures according to uh, communist dictates. In spite of that, Open Doors estimates there are now approximately 96.7 million believers in China. The gospel cannot be restrained. Such a powerful gospel spurred the imprisoned Paul onto his life goal. What was that? Even though chained in a dungeon, he said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect. The target of the gospel in verse 10. Because the gospel message could not be chained or controlled, because it could not be, Paul confidently pours his life out for the sake of God's children. The gospel will continue to move and work among the people whom God has chosen. No matter whether Paul is chained or executed, at the end of this letter Paul pens this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The recipients of Paul's selfless act of loving sacrifice here for the gospel are who? It's the elect. And who is this? Who are these elect? Jesus proclaimed this truth of his sovereign election in John 15, verse 16. He says very directly, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. In the early church, God's election was joyful noise, joyful news to those who had been kept on the outside by the Jewish religious leaders. In Acts 13, 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began re- rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to enter eternal life believed. Among the Gentiles. Paul declared to the Ephesians in his letter to their church. Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Predestined for adoption as sons according to His will. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. When? Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The elect. Hendrickson wrote this. These references clearly teach that God did not choose His own because they are more numerous, but for His own sake. That He loves them freely that they are given to the Son by the Father 
and drawn by the Father and the Son. And that with respect to them, God exercises His own very unique kind of love. They teach that this predestinating love has as its objects sinners, viewed in all their foolishness and weakness. That it bestows its favor on those who have nothing and will never have anything except what they have received. On those who differ from other people for the simple reason that God, in effectuating His decree of election, causes them to differ. On those who, far from being chosen on account of their unblemished character, are chosen in order that they may be without blemish and unspotted before Him. Yes, on those who will love Him because He first loved them. He goes on to say the scriptural doctrine of election, far from putting any restrictions on the exercise of human freedom, points to the one who makes man free indeed. The God who in His sovereign love chooses a person, in time powerfully influences His will, illumines His mind, floods His heart with love in return for God's love. The decree of election includes the means as well as the end. That's a great compact description of election. If anyone would like to get that, I'd be, I'll be glad to send it to you as well. It's from uh, Hendrickson. Another com- commentator says, Perhaps that the fact that our finite minds cannot fully understand or reconcile these truths no way, in no way affects their validity. So the elect, the elect whom God has chosen will in turn obtain something. They will obtain the reward of the gospel. The reward of the gospel. Verse 10, in the middle there, it says that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Obtaining salvation. Ultimately, this is what Paul is willing to suffer and die for. The salvation of God's people. This salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, there is now therefore no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved in Jesus Christ. At Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ, in Christ. And it contains with it, that salvation, an eternal glory. Now keep in mind as we read these things, Paul is not sitting in a seminary tower with a word processor before him and and air conditioning and a lemonade beside him as he writes these things. He is in a dark, stinking death pit knowing that he any day will be pulled out of there and his head removed from his body. That is the context. We have to remember that. He keeps his mind, however, on this. Remembering momentary 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says this, these momentary light afflictions are producing for him an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What he is going through is preparing him for great glory in Christ. Now, Paul's command to remember Jesus Christ is then capped here at the end with 11, 12, and 13, those three verses 
of what's called a gospel hymn. It's thought that perhaps it came from a hymn, an ancient hymn, or perhaps some sort of statement of faith that's concise. It's, it's rather pithy as you look at it. Um, if you took much time to really stop and think about it, you realize there's a lot here. And there's a lot to be interpreted and understood. Commentators agree that it was taken from a hymn. Most of us, however, do not like to use the word conditions when we talk about the gospel. We don't want to see those two words in the same sentence. But what we have here are a collection of conditional statements. If-thens. Conditional statements. By no means am I saying that we must meet certain conditions to earn the attention or the grace of God. Not at all. Our salvation is given to us out of an unconditional grace. A lavish love poured out on us. When we were helpless, as Romans 5 says, when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God, we had not earned our way. There was no condition that we had met. But please think carefully. And let's see if we can make sense of these last few verses. He begins in verse 11. He says, this is a faithful saying. It is an introduction that Paul uses five times in his pastoral letters, his letters to Timothy and Titus. He uses it five times and it appears nowhere else in any of Paul's writings. This is a faithful saying, gives an amplified emphasis to what comes next. Now obviously that does not mean that the rest of the letter is not faithful. doesn't mean that. It, the entire letter and the rest of the Old and New Testament are all faithful. They are all inspired by God. But this phrase has a unique place here. It introduces a statement that we may call a truism. In other words, something that is assumed and agreed to be true by those in the Christian community. It is like saying, well, everybody knows that. Everybody knows these things. These sayings come in a unique literary form. In this conditional statement, there are four stanzas. And each begins with a condition. Look at that. If this, if this, if this, if this. A conditional statement. If this condition is met, or if this is, occurs, or if this is true, then this will be the result. Now conditional statements, or if-then statements, they are very common in the study of math and in the study of logic. But they actually take place in our daily lives all the time. I may say, well, if it rains this afternoon, the laundry on the line is going to be a mess. Or, if I had known that team would win the game, I wouldn't have turned it on. Or, if I don't fill up the car with gas pretty soon, I'm going to be walking with a gas can. You know, if then, if this is the condition, then this will happen. In these first two stanzas, the results are blessing, and in the second two, we have very sober warning. 11 says, For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we died with Him, Paul is saying to Timothy, keep in mind the context, the battleground that surrounds Him, the death, the suffering. If we die with Him, we shall also live with Him. Now, it only makes sense that this does remind us of Paul's letter in Romans chapter 6. I want you to look at that briefly with me. Romans 6 verse 1. Please turn to that. Romans 6 verse 1 says, 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So there is a death that Paul speaks of there. But the theme of that is a death to sin. And it is very legitimate. It is completely truth. And we need to keep that in mind. But this Second Timothy passage, if you carefully consider Paul imprisoned in the dark stench of the stone dungeon, alone and suffering, I believe he is also considering death not only to sin, but to all that this world has to offer. May we come to that. All that the world has to offer. The world holds no attraction to Paul. Oh, that I could be there. That I could get that. The world holds no attraction to Paul. He has died to it completely. In Galatians 6, 14, he writes, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Hendrickson writes, Not that believers, including Paul and Timothy, are pictured as having at any time already experienced a martyr's death, but rather as being fully resigned to it and to all the afflictions which preceded. Paul would be saying, For Christ's sake and in harmony with His example, we have given ourselves up once for all to a life that involves exposure to pain, torture, reproach, And finally to the martyr's death. We have accordingly died to worldly comfort, ease, advantage, and honor. End quote. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 Paul wrote, And those who are Christ's, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Such a state of death is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.10. This morbid sounding statement. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Endure is a Greek word. It's hupomeno. It means to stay under. To remain under. To bear trials. To have fortitude and persevere when the weight is heavy you stay there and you carry you carry on you endure Paul has been doing this for some time now 2 Timothy 2 he said therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And he has already urged Timothy to also suffer with him. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, of his, me his prisoner. But Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God. But now things are almost ready to change. And it will be dramatic. 
Now Paul knows his suffering is coming to an end through his execution. There will be no more co-suffering for he and Timothy together as comrades in the gospel. Very soon it will just be Timothy called here to endure. Timothy, endure. Timothy in church, if you endure, there is reward beyond imagination. It says you will reign. If you endure, if you do not come out from underneath, but you endure hardship, it says you will reign. I will admit the details of what this reigning includes, I have much to learn about. But the certainty that echoes throughout the New Testament is undeniable. You and I as heirs together, we will reign at the Father's side or at Christ's side. Romans 5.17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. One reigned in death, we will reign in life. Through the one, Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.21 The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And Revelation 5.10 And he has made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Now the final two stanzas are conditional with very sobering warnings. And these are probably the most difficult to look through here. Verse 12 says, if we deny him, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If you literally disown Christ, he will disown you. You will not be claimed. Matthew 26, 35, Peter made this bold statement. He said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And it says, so said all the disciples. Then after sleeping a while in the garden of Gethsemane while Jesus prayed and with deep passion and zeal slicing off the ear of the servant of the high priest in a bungled defense of Jesus, Peter steps into the darkest hours of his life. Matthew 26 verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. A denial. This statement of Jesus that he makes here may be taken from, excuse me, this statement of Paul may be taken from Matthew 10 where Jesus said these things. And and we'll get to that last part, verse 32 and 33, but I want you to understand the context where this is coming from as we lead up to it. Matthew 10, 26 says, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, 
speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Then he says, Therefore whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He spends seven verses of comfort and encouragement and rallying his people to speak boldly and to know that he will be with them. But he closes that with the sobering statement that if you're thinking about denial, it will have a tragic result in your life. Second Peter 2 verse 1 says, But they were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Hebrews 6 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who once were enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance again since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You see, this denial in this verse sets up two truths. It gives us a grave warning we must give very close attention to. By the grace of God, Peter was crushed by the conviction of his sin. His denial and his failure to love Jesus broke that man. Yes, he denied, but he also repented. It was failure, but God granted him repentance. And he, as we know through the Gospels, was later restored to his Savior's side. But the habitual deniers of 2 Peter 2 It says, are sentenced to destruction. They are similar to Paul's co-workers, Demas, whom he included with greetings to the church in Colossae. He wrote there, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, greet you. Things are going well. Colossians 4.14, and calling Demas here a fellow laborer. He says, only to give, and calling Demas a fellow laborer in his letter to Philemon, only to give an updated and final report In 2 Timothy, where we read there, Demoth has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas disowned not only Paul, but Christ as well. Without repentance, a denier will hear Jesus declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The final stanza of the hymn addresses faithfulness, faithlessness. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Faithless. It's not the same word in verse 12 that is used for denial. That means denial to contradict, to reject, to refuse. It's by no less, by any means less heinous. Faithless in verse 13 means to be unbelieving. That is disbelieve. You be without Christian faith. The hymn says, 
If we are faithless, He remains faithful, trustworthy. God is unchanging. No matter how we respond to Him, He will always be true to His character. For He cannot deny Himself. He cannot literally contradict who He is. Now, however you're looking at this, it may be a comfort or it may be a fear. There are two main interpretations that are applied to this text. Both are consistent with biblical truth. I want to share both with you, but also indicate which one seems most likely to be Paul's heart at that moment. The first interpretation of repentance and forgiveness. It is scripturally possible and consistent with the character of God that even when we at times display faithlessness, which we do, faithlessness similar to Peter's denying Christ in the heat of Jesus' arrest, God is faithful to forgive and bring us to repentance and reconciliation. In this way, God demonstrates faithfulness to His promise. He is consistent with His promise. In John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In verse 40, John 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, through repentance and forgiveness, a man like me, a woman like you, or a man like you, who has been unfaithful, is forgiven. God is being consistent with His Word. He is not contradicting His promise when He sustains His children to eternal life. Such perhaps is the case for John Mark. Remember John Mark. Paul denounced him in Acts 15. He insisted that he and Barnabas should not take John Mark along. That don't bring him on the mission because he deserted us in Pamphylia. And he has not gone with us into the work. John Mark had been faithless. However, several years later, even Paul wrote, writes in 2 Timothy 4, Pick up Mark, bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. At one point, Mark demonstrated faithlessness, but now he is faithful. He is proven, and he is useful in ministry. The second interpretation of this last verse is one of unbelief and judgment. I want you to think, and we're almost finished here, so hold tight to this. Think through these scriptures. Please think very carefully now of Paul, imprisoned and awaiting imminent execution by beheading. He continues to suffer deep physical and emotional hardship. As he writes, he calls Timothy and the church to endure long, painful trials. The church is plagued with former elders and influential teachers who have turned from the gospel of Christ. These are men who have adamantly rejected faith in Christ, traitors to Christ, like Demas, or the Asian leaders Paul mentions here, Phagellus and Hermogenes, or Ephesus' own heretics, Phagellus and Hermogenes, men whom Paul says he handed over to Satan. Such faithless men will be met by the God who is faithful to His word and His justice. He has provided a loving rescue to all men who will place their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But His justice will require the penalty of death. 
because of the sin of those men and women who refuse the gracious gift of Christ. Christ's imputation is payment for them on the cross. They have refused. Any other response by God? Then judgment would be a contradiction of Himself. And He will not do this. This is clearly demonstrated in a very familiar verse that you all know at least the first part. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. What a pouring out of grace undeserved this Jesus. Verse 18 goes on to tell us he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe he who is faithless without faith is condemned already. John MacArthur wrote, Just as Christ will never renege on His promise to save those who trust in Him, He also will never renege on His promise to condemn those who do not. Henriksen wrote, For faithlessness on His part means carrying out His threats as well as His promises. Divine faithfulness is a wonderful comfort for those who are loyal. It is a very earnest warning for those who might be inclined to disloyalty. Hebrews 10, verse 23, as Phil read earlier, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Calvin wrote this. says, This doctrine, and think about this, this doctrine has more need of being meditated on than of being explained. For the words of Christ are perfectly clear. We may wrestle with it. We may tussle with it. But it is clear. Romanian pastor Joseph Tson was a man who lived in suffering much like the Apostle Paul. Jeff Robinson of Southern Seminary chronicled his life in this post. He wrote, Tson's testimony is one of both grave persecution and the grace of God. He was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s and charged with being a Christian minister. Each time, he underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, beatings, and mind games before finally being exiled from the country in 1981. When the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and I said, Sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. So why say stop this trouble? Because the more suffering, the greater the glory up there. End quote. During one particularly harrowing session of interrogation, Tson told his inquisitors that spilling his blood would only serve to water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of the theology of suffering, he learned, was that tribulation is never an accident, but is part of God's sovereign plan for building His church. 
Son said, I told the interrogator, you should know your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Now here is how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I had better listen again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder if you kill me. And because you kill me, in fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. Go on and do it. Dying for the Lord is not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's part of the job. It's part of the ministry. And it's the greatest way of preaching. May God prepare our hearts and minds with a steady diet of His Word and prayer that we may not simply be willing but gladly give our lives in suffering and death for the gospel. How close are you to that point right now? How close are you to this point? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are very simple. Father, we are weak and we stand before you humbled and we see men like Paul whom you used, Timothy, a timid man, but you've empowered him. And Father, we cry out to you. Don't leave us as we are. Father, we thank you for salvation, but don't leave us. Don't leave us as we are. Leave. Come in, fill us, use us, lead us, that our lives, whether on the manufacturing floor or at the sales office, in the kitchen, in the Walmart, over the fence to our neighbor, the gospel will be ours. It will be ours my gospel, and we will share this boldly, profusely, unafraid, not even only unafraid, but as James says, welcoming, considering a pure joy to go through trials. Lord, lead us so that out of this little assembly, the name of the church won't be magnified, but Jesus Christ will be glorified and magnified and you will use us to bring glory to your name and souls into your kingdom. Thank you for the example of Paul. May we follow in his footsteps. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.